What's up guys? It's a great day. This is Fuquan Bilal and we are back with another great episode of the PFREI podcast series. We interview experts in the real estate business in order to provide you with some of the best investment strategies and techniques used by leading fund managers, financiers, house flippers, and more. We appreciate every single one of you for taking the time to press play on the podcast and hope you enjoy this new episode. All right, guys, we're back again with another great episode of PFREI. I'm your host, Fuquan Bilal. Today, I have the man, the myth, the legend, Tim Bratz, the uh, the multifamily king. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, welcome to the show, man. I really appreciate you uh, you coming on the show. I know your focus is commercial real estate, so we'll, we'll get into that in apartment buildings. Um, you know, we were just talking, your, your portfolio is somewhere, it's crazy, 280 million. So you definitely, you guys want to listen it's, in on it's this. It's north of that now, man. I'm at, I'm at about 335 million now. Ooh, wow. That's beautiful. I mean, I can only imagine the pressure to constantly perform and, and, and produce <laughs> for your investors as this, as you're growing. Um, so this is great. I, I wanted to get you on a show because um, I had a couple of people who do multifamily um, and the show basically just talks about um, the different, you know, real estate is multifaceted. So we talk about uh, wholesaling, which has been, a, a, I don't know, I've probably interviewed a hundred wholesalers, right? Um, interviewed maybe one or two multifamily guys. I know that, you know, your name is like on the top of the list on my radar that I wanted to get on the show. So you could kind of share uh, with the, our audience pretty much what is it that you do and, um, and, and how do you help investors achieve their financial goals? And uh, we'll talk about some other stuff from there. The first question I always ask him is, why are you passionate for real estate investing? Yeah, man. So first of all, thank you for having me, dude. I got a ton of respect for you and all the things that you've done in real estate and, and you know, all the value that you provide to other people. So dude, it's a big honor to be here and uh, really appreciate the invite, man. Um, so as far as real estate goes, like I was getting, like I got involved in real estate when the market was going crazy back in 03 to 07. Um, that's when I really was going through college and really like understood that people made a lot of money in real estate. So that was like the initial motivating factor. Um, and so I've always been in real estate ever since I got out of college. I've, I, like, I don't know anything else. And what I love about it is like, it's not an experiment, right? It's not a startup. It's not a get rich quick. It's like, I don't know, since the beginning of civilization, land ownership has been the best measure of wealth, you know? And so I knew that eventually it would work out. It would just be a matter of time for me of, you know, how long does it take in order for me to go and, you know, uh, um, go through the hurdles and go through the struggles and overcome all those obstacles. And eventually I get to a point where real estate worked, right? It's just, it's not whether or not it works. It's just what's the timeline. And so for me, that was like a big, uh, push. I knew that it made sense. I knew it was a greatest way to create wealth and the greatest way to preserve wealth. It was just a matter of time for me to go out and get that. And so what I've learned since then and what I'm really passionate about is like, dude, it's not, it's not rocket science, right? It's buying assets, creating enough value for other people where they're willing to pay you for that asset. And, and not only that, like they pay you, right? So you, you create value, nice, clean, safe, functional place to, for somebody to live. They're willing to pay you every month to live there. That covers all of your operating expenses to own that asset. It pays for your loan, on that asset, it puts cash in your pocket every single month. And then when you think about how is wealth built, dude, every year you nominally bump up the rent or you, you improve the value, it appreciates a little bit over time. And then 
every year, every month, you're making a mortgage payment, or really your tenants are making a mortgage payment, you're slamming down principal on your loan amount. And all of a sudden, it's appreciating, you're paying down, and all of a sudden, over here, 10, 20, 30 years down the road, you've created all this equity um, for, for just not doing anything uh, Herculean, right? It's like, it's a standard process. You buy assets, you get other people to pay for them and you sit on it over time. And eventually you don't owe anything on it and the value doubles. And all of a sudden you're worth millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars. And so for me, like that's a, that it's so, it's so simple yet so profound. Hmm. You make it sound so sexy. <laughs> so <laughs> there's, there's when, when do I start? Love. Let me start right now. So yeah. Um, you know, we both know there's challenges that come along with this man. So uh, let's talk about that. You know, you got beat up on your way. Let's talk about some of those hurdles that you had to overcome who made you the man you are today, the businessman you are today. Um, you know, you know, I've heard your story before where you had a bad partnership and, you know, you was doing most of the work and you noticed the writing on the wall and you, you kind of went off and did your own thing, which probably was the best thing ever. Uh, but you know, you can't do this without a team. And I know you built a, a great team, but let's talk about some of the struggles along the way. Um, we got you where you are now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, dude, tons of struggles, right? Like I was really bad at real, real estate for the first seven years. And I got good at it about five years ago. And, and even five years ago, I was still kind of figuring it out. And, um, you know, I, I think early on, there's going to be struggles. You understand there's going to be struggles. It doesn't matter what industry you're in. It doesn't matter what business you begin. It doesn't matter uh, even if you're in a job or whatever, whatever you're going through, there's going to be struggles in whatever it is. They say you don't become an expert in anything unless you give 10,000 hours of work, which if you're given 40 hours a week, that's a five-year time frame. So a full-time effort for five years makes you an expert in whatever industry you're in. And so, you know, for me, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm going through the process it, early on. I messed up everything. And I think if you would have told me all the struggles and adversities that I would have faced throughout this path, I don't know if I would have pursued it, you know, but I think people always think the grass is greener on the other side. Oh, let me go and, you know, chase uh, cryptocurrency right now. Let me chase e-commerce stores. That's crazy, chase, right? Like all this stuff, man. Let me, let me go and short the stock market or, or, or short, you know, um, blockbuster stock, whatever the hell that people are doing, right? In order to get rich quick. And, and, and to me, like the grass is not always greener. It's just different, right? And it takes a shitload of watering in order to get the grass up and running on the other side of the fence, right? And so- for me, again, going back to the idea of real estate is it, it, it's been around, it's time tested, it's uh, super steady. Like I knew that it would work. So um, I always focused on the goal, right? I think a lot of people, they're like, what if, what if a contractor rips me off? That's happened many a times. I've walked into houses and opened up the door with roaches falling on my head from the door jam. I've walked <laughs> out with fleas up my jeans, let, yeah. left my jeans in the middle of the, of the driveway, drove home pantsless, yeah. right? I, I've had <laughs> chase me out of houses with baseball bats. I've had tenants tear up my property like you've never seen. I've had contractors rip me off out of hundreds of thousands of dollars. I've had um, like, dude, pipes ripped out of properties three times while I was renovating it, you know, like over and over appliances, all this stuff, dude, ripped off on, on so many different levels. And, um, and I think if you focus on that, then all of a sudden you think about all the negative stuff that could come with, I just focused on the, on the positive side. I always just focused on, dude, there's going to be some struggles. There's going to be some bullshit. There's going to be some garbage that I have to deal with, 
But guess what? I'm going to be financially free because a lot of people are going to get cleaned out from this stuff happening. You know, they're going to get their leads wiped out. They're going to not be tough enough internally to stick with it. And um, I was like, dude, I know that there's light at the end of the tunnel. I know that eventually if I keep on getting this going, then, or keep on moving this along, then I'm going to be able to build out a team and I'll be able to hire a management company. I'll be able to hire people to go and deal with this stuff that I don't want to do, but I can go and, and if I just stick with it. And so I think that's, I don't know, probably one of the biggest um, uh, uh, laws of success and secrets of success. Dude, you just stick with it, right? Like, I remember the one Rocky movie. He's like, it's not about how hard you can hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and then keep moving forward. Like that's True. how winning is done. Absolutely. And, um, and dude, it's a hundred percent the fact so many people get hit and they get knocked out of the ring and they're like, you know, I'm not going to throw my gloves in. I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. Um, dude, I, I, I had to create a constraint where I, I didn't have an option, right? Like I came straight out of college into real estate and then the market collapsed in 08. What else was I going to do though? I didn't know anything else. Like go get a job and like, Real estate's the only thing I knew. So I, I, I had already like almost burnt the ships in, an, in a way that I didn't have other plan Bs. I didn't have other options. I had to make it work. Otherwise I'd die, right? And so um, I just did. I just dealt with the garbage. I just pushed through all the adversities and, uh, and moved the needle forward, man. Yeah, that's awesome, man. It's the, the journey along the way is, is, has definitely shaped and molded you in, into a better operator. And I saw the debate uh, you know, residential versus multifamily it was a great to be. <laughs> that was really good. And a lot of good pointers on both sides. Uh, yeah. But, you know, after I started the debate, I'm like, oh, so look, because I'm one of those single family flip guys. Uh, multifamily plus here in New Jersey is, you know, four family, six family. You know, that's pretty much residential one through four of my space. Um, you know, because of taxes in New Jersey where I'm at, the price is so cheap. So I started looking at stuff out of state where pretty much everybody who's in multifamily don't invest in their backyard, they invest in either um, states that's uh, Ohio, uh, you know, Pennsylvania, wherever it is at, where you can find cheaper product with taxes and everything else and B class or whatever they, you know, buy boxes. Uh, what, what made you make that transition? Because you started off doing some single family stuff and you, you sort of right on the wall earlier and said, you know what, I need to jump into this multifamily thing. Yeah, man. I, I, I'm a residential guy. Like I got my real estate license because I thought that's how you got started. And I got into wholesaling and then I started flipping kind of like the HGTV retail flips. Um, and then I ended up buying some single family rentals, some small multi, like, you know, the duplexes and quadplexes and triplexes. And then, uh, and then I fell into an eight unit building in 2012. Uh, it was just so cheap. I couldn't pass it up. So I bought this eight unit building and I gravitated heavily towards like the turnkey rental side of things. Um, first of all, I'm a, I'm a crappy flipper. I'm not very good at it. I don't like the emotional side of dealing with, you know, somebody who doesn't like the backsplash that, that we picked out for the house. Like that, that just drives me nuts. It's, it's very, um, when there's not something that's predictable and like, I, I like the investment side of real estate because it's very numbers analytics. It's not emotional. Does, does it work? Does it not work? No problem. Like it, it's the, the, the retail side ends up becoming very emotional. You get people who just don't think reasonably and don't think logically. And that makes it very difficult to have a predictable business, you know? Um, so for me, I gravitated towards the rental side very quickly. Uh, the other thing is like, if I had a rental, I could buy it, fix it all up, put a tenant in place and then flip it as a turnkey rental to, you know, a white collar professional. And, uh, and that's great. 
I'd make the same percentage return of what I was into it for as I did on my like HGTV retail flips. The difference was if this rental didn't sell, I didn't care because I had enough cash flow that covered the operating expenses and the debt service and the holding costs on that property versus the, you know, the retail flip just sat vacant. It was just, and it sucked money every single month. And I got really stressed about that. So that was the main reason why I gravitated towards rentals. And then, you know, the, the apartments is just offers more scale. And so it was the same thing. It was just on a bigger scale. And instead of going and negotiating on uh, 10 single family houses, I can go and negotiate on one uh, 10 unit apartment building. I go get financing on one building instead of 10 houses. I go and look at one foundation instead of 10 foundations, one roof instead of 10 roofs, um, go to, you know, collect rent at one location instead of 10 locations. So there's just, there's efficiencies and economies of scale that came into that. Like one water bill instead of 10 water bills. So just like paying utilities became easier. Everything on multiple levels became easier because you had the scale associated with it. Um, yeah. and, you know, management fees are less because everything's in one spot, you know? So because of that, I gravitated towards that. I built up a portfolio of all these small uh, apartment buildings, eight units. And then I bought a 14 and then I bought a 23 and I, and I naturally and organically kind of grew into larger and larger buildings. Um, and when my portfolio was over hundred units, then that allowed me to go and negotiate on a hundred unit apartment building. And I doubled my portfolio overnight. And then I had 200 units and I went and bought another 60 unit and 134 unit. And now I had 400 units, you know, essentially within 30 days after that. So like the growth that you can, um, uh, experience is like exponential. Yeah. Let's talk two things, two more questions I have for you. One is distress. So everybody who get into the multifamily sector, they're either looking for class B, class C, and everybody stay away from distress. So what gives me my importance of, of what's giving my feeling of importance, Tim, is I come from North New Jersey. I'm not sure how familiar you are with New Jersey. It's the hood, right? When I go back to that community and develop those properties that are burnt out or whatever, like totally distressed and bring them back and then give a tenant in that neighborhood an opportunity that they would have to live in the same quality of apartment if it was in a B class or A class, that gives me a feeling of importance knowing that I went back with the property in the tax roll and made the community better because all the other investors are scared to invest in the area one because of the people that's there. So, you know, they kind of think, okay, everybody there is bad, but that's not true. There are some good people that live in bad neighborhoods. So um, that gives my little importance, but getting over to my question is, why do you think people stay away from those distressed assets? Because there's so many multifamily distressed assets, but people just stay away from them. I think when I look at that, I'm saying opportunity. If you go to Cleveland, East Cleveland, or certain parts of the town, you're like, why, why is this vacant? This is a yep. hundred unit building, cheap. Yep. What's your, what's your take on that? I just wanted your opinion yeah, on yeah. that. Yeah, so, so what you'll find is um, the, like the niche that I fell into was I was bigger than the small investors, but I was smaller than the hedge funds and the REITs. Um, and so I was kind of like in this middle ground of, of, I wanted to go and, and buy the same stuff actually that the, the real estate, uh, hedge funds and the, and the real estate trusts were buying, uh, but they had deeper pockets than I had. And so I had to go into and buy a lot of distressed assets and create the appreciation. The small guys cannot usually qualify. Like, dude, that's a big renovation. You know, you go into East Cleveland, you're talking about doing all, like, it's a nice, they have nice buildings, but first of all, like the school system's tough, right? There's a lot of crime in the area. Um, stuff gets broken into all the time. You have to worry about if it's a vacant building, it's going to get broken into, all the supplies are going to get stolen. Like, so like there's, there's that issue. 
but you can go into something um, in that area specifically. They're, they're, it's a very older housing stock too. The buildings are hundred years old. So you, get, you find out like there's foundation issues and there's plumbing issues and there's just a lot of electrical type stuff and, and that kind of jazz. So it ends up becoming too much work for a lot of the smaller investors to, be, to want to get into that. And it's too distressed for the hedge funds and the REITs who have FU kind of money. They'll just go and buy something that's stabilized because they can sit on it for the next 10, 15, 20 years. They don't have to pay anybody back. It's, it's a, you know, a pool of, of money that um, they have other, other deals going on at all times and they can pay back their investors from those. So I found that exactly what you're talking about has huge upside. It's just, are you willing to you know, roll up your sleeves, get your hands dirty? Um, and we were willing to do that. That's why I was able to grow a portfolio of over 4,000 doors in five years and create like in the, in the heat of uh, a market cycle, right? Like 15 to 2020 was like, dude, apartments were all over the place. Everybody's like, I want apartment buildings. I want apartment buildings. And the prices skyrocketed. But because I went in, bought distressed assets and I forced appreciation, I created it through the value add and through the renovations instead of speculating on it and waiting for it to, to appreciate just kind of over time. Um, like, like my portfolios were, you know, it's worth around $335 million. We only owe 220 million, 215 million on it. So like we were able to build a portfolio and create a hundred million dollars of equity. It's not all mine, right? Like I get a chunk of it, but um, I have partners and equity investors and stuff like that, but like create a hundred million dollars of equity in the peak of the market because we're, we were willing to get into some of those uh, opportunistic stuff. areas. Yeah. You know? And I think every area has both opportunity and struggle, right? Like in the areas you're talking about, the struggle is it's a tough area, but there's huge upside on it. Like, the opportunity in, in a, a, an A-class kind of area that's, that's nice and, and white collar kind of an area is you don't have to deal with the headaches. You don't have to get your hands dirty, but the struggle is you can't find deals, right? They're yeah. hard to find yeah. deals on that kind of stuff. So I, I think there's, there's a give and take and kind of a, um, on all of that stuff um, just depends on what works for you. And I think at different times in your career and different seasons in your investing career, um, like I'm not willing to buy the same stuff that I was willing to buy five years ago, right? Like yeah. now I want bigger buildings. I want a little bit nicer of an area. Those buildings that I did buy, I told you before we started this, I'm selling 2000 doors. Those are all my small buildings under hundred units and anything that's like C-class areas. Um, so I'm selling off that. They serve their purpose, got me to where I am today, but not where I want to go, right? I can't scale to 10,000 doors with a bunch of C-class, heavy management intensive um, type properties. I need to get into more of a B class, um, less, less management, less headache and, um, something that's a little bit more stabilized instead of, mm. you know, taking on all this, all this, uh, work and yeah, that ends up becoming the bottleneck a lot of times. Makes sense. Last question I have for you is COVID the elephant in the room. You know, you own this massive portfolio, all these doors. Um, you know, I've been on calls with a lot of operators who had, you know, stop paying investors, building reserves. That was like the trend during the whole thing. Um, how did you come out of that? And where do you stand now uh, as far as your portfolio? A lot of people got, some people got beat up. Some people, oh, I didn't had still 95% rental collection, you know, whatever. Yeah. How did that affect you? And then, you know, yeah. how did you pivot from that? Because I know you didn't sit still to take it. No, man. I mean, uh, I, I think like people are like, oh, let's just kind of keep it hush, hush. Like, like tenants aren't going to find out that there's a, a, an eviction moratorium. Like, dude, are you kidding me? Like, you don't, <laughs> especially in an apartment building. So I, was, I went to my team and I was like, we got to hit this in the face before it hits us in the face. So we, we put together um, some communication to the tenants that was very 
very candid, right? It was just, hey, guys, here's what's going on. You know, there's an eviction moratorium. We can't evict anybody for not paying rent. That doesn't mean you don't have to pay rent, right? Like if you don't pay rent, here's what happens. We can't pay the, for the trash to get picked up and you're going to have garbage all over your, your you know, home. You can't pay for an exterminator to come out. We can't pay for the grass to get cut. We can't pay for the lights and the heat to work in the wintertime. I can't pay like, like this. You think that all this money that you pay in rent goes to, you know, some, some landlord sitting up on a hill in a castle somewhere. That's not the case. It goes to the operating expenses and the mortgage payment on the property. And so I think explaining that to the tenants, um, that's not just lining our pockets with, with cash, uh, is an important factor. Then the other thing is, hey, if, there, if there's anybody who is having an issue, let us know. We'll work with you. We'll put you on a payment plan. And by the way, here's five or six different like subsidy organizations or uh, churches or, or whatever that we're, we're helping people with food, with money, with uh, rent cash, like anything that they needed. And so we made sure that they had access to all these different resources. So we kind of attacked it before we got hit by it. Um, I will say that our B-class stuff and better uh, is performing well, right? None of those people were adversely affected by their jobs. We are uh, um, sign- like, like collecting 97% in our B-class stuff. In the C-class stuff, that's, um, there's a little bit of, of gaming of the system. And it wasn't bad at first. Um, you know, there was a rental or an eviction moratorium last summer. And then it lifted in like August, I think. And so a lot of people caught up on payments and we were good to go there. A few people had turned over, but then uh, they put it back in place uh, over the holidays. And now, I don't know if you saw it today, but uh, Biden just extended it until June. So now there's a, a, an eviction moratorium until June, Crazy. Yeah. which is not exciting, right? As, yeah. as a landlord. But if you have really good management in place, that helps. Um, if you have solid uh, areas and, and you're, you're, you have solid tenants and they're, they're not adversely affected by the jobs and the work that COVID has affected, you're in pretty good shape. We do have some C-class stuff. And even though not all of our tenants are adversely affected from an income, they're, they're still kind of gaming the system. And it wasn't a big deal. It's like 1% a month and then another 1%. But then all of a sudden over five, six months, it adds up. And all of a sudden your collections drop below 90%. And, um, uh, and then you're like, eh, you know, and you, you start worrying a little bit about this stuff. So, you know, I mean, fortunately, we're in a position where we bought at a very low basis, right? And a lot of our properties have been refinanced where we pay back our investors. Um, and then there's other properties that may, might, you know, not have been paid back. But again, because we're at such a low basis, we don't really need that high of an occupancy. We renovate it. And I think 99% of your issues, of all landlord issues, whether COVID's happening or not, are, are mostly eliminated if you do two things. You screen your tenants, make sure you have quality tenants in place. Most of the tenants that are game in the system, we didn't put in place. They were put in there by the previous owner and we just couldn't kick them out because COVID happened immediately after we bought the property. So if you screen your tenants, that's going to help. And you take care of the property and you show them that you're actually offering value and doing the right thing and trying to give them someplace that's clean and safe and functional and cosmetically improved and updated. Um, that's going to eliminate 99% of your issues. There's going to be some gaming of the system for sure. But um, I think just, just doing those two things is going to be a big deal for you and, and overly communicating all this stuff. Yeah, this is great, man. Thank you, man. I know, I know you got a lot of your play. I really appreciate you taking the time out today to, uh, to come on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Tim Bratz, another great episode, PFREI, Passion for Real Estate Investments. Catch us on YouTube, Twitter, all the other social media handles. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it, all the knowledge you shared with us today.
Appreciate you, man. Thank you for having me. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the Passion for Real Estate Investments podcast. Looking forward to providing you guys with more testimonials from successful real estate investors. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at a passion, the number four, REI. Thanks so much, guys. And until next time, it's a great day. Mm -hmm.